0: Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Patty and Jack Phillips. They are the CEO and the chair, respectively, of the ROI Institute. And they're also the authors of the book, Show the Value of What You Do Measuring and Achieving Success in Any Endeavor. Patty and Jack, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Richard. Pleasure. Thank you.
0: Okay, and I it. would, and I, and I really can't get, wait to get into this. And I'm imagining that there uh, is a big section of our audience who um, are involved in leading projects of getting products, projects off the off the ground, and have a need for what it is that you're teaching um, uh, to convince others and bring others along in terms of uh, getting projects into action. So you know, I'm really excited today to be uh, delving into this. Topic Um, and before we get into the meat of it, I'm just interested to know, yeah, a bit of background of how how you both of you came to this topic. Uh, It seems to me like you've dedicated a good chunk of your lives to this to this topic. So where did it where did it all start?
1: So Jack, you go ahead and kick off.
2: It started actually with me. I was um, an engineer in background and uh, worked in with an aerospace company called Lockheed Martin, and. Flipped over into the learning and development team to started teaching there. But I had a request to show the value of one of our major programs, um, all the way to ROI, if I would could do that. Um, and, and we struggled with it, but we did it. I, I, at the time was working on a master's degree in statistics and this became my statistics project. I mean, my uh, thesis project. Is to show the value of this major program. And from that, what we were able to do is to keep that program funded. And that was the part was in question. And also got more support for it. And we actually made it a better program. So I walked away from that experience saying, hey, this is this is a pretty good thing to do, is to show the value of what you do all the way up to even maybe the financial ROI, as we did in that case. And it really is a great way to keep your f- funding and getting the support you need and getting the, the project uh, improved, make it better. So from that, we started putting more structure, more processes around it. We wrote our, really our first book on that back way back in the 80s. And since then, we've written over 75 books. And we started this company. Patty uh, joined us early in the process of about 25 years ago. And Patty, why don't you pick it up from there?
1: Yeah, so my entree into this was a little more serendipitously. I spent about 13 years in corporate America and uh, working for a large organization and then began working with Jack in this process and working with clients in the process. And I really valued the process because it's based on fundamental, you know, good sound research. So good research. Um, It was work that I like to do, and that's the research, the cost-benefit analysis, the statistics, but also we could see how it was really helping individuals within the organizations demonstrate the work that they were doing. So just not just the projects they're working on, but really the value that they were bringing to the organization. And we found more and more that that's what organizations need. And it, it just provides that insight that decision makers are often lacking when they make those funding decisions. And then through the process, and my PhD is actually in international development, and so through the process, we expanded it beyond corporate to really work within the nonprofit um, organizations, non-governmental organizations, um, and then help you know those individuals who are working in areas that are more difficult to demonstrate value give them a tool that they could actually demonstrate value in the most objective way possible. And that's the book, actually, Richard, as we were talking earlier, uh, kicks off with one of those stories.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I'm just I'm, I'm really keen just to start then diving in, and we can come to that story, Patty. I think that would be a good one. But w- where it started for you, Jack, with that learning and development program, uh, yeah, I'm intrigued. What, what was the program, and how did you show the value of it?
2: Well, good question. It was actually a, what we call a cooperative education program. Uh, these were college uh, students who alternated work in school. They work for the company a semester and they go to school a semester. And it was a program that lasted usually five years for the student and they got their degree and they got a lot of experience. I had 350 co-op students um, for, representing 16 universities. They're all engineering. And we're doing this for the chief engineer and we the, the salaries for the co-op students when they're working were actually on my budget right and and so you can imagine 350 students um, making a, a good wage here it's a lot of money and I would just take my my expense and my salary and my assistant's uh, salary and and all of those salaries and I'd send it to the chief engineer every month and charge it to him because it, we're doing it for a recruiting tool. So he was the one that brought up the point, Is just really adding value. So what we did, we did a classic uh, experimental versus control group. We looked at the graduates in the company who came through our program as the experimental program and then we compare it to those who did not have the cooperative education That's a control group. And we look at the difference, the difference in terms of how long they stay with the company how did they progress in the organization, their performance actually? Um, and it was amazing to see the difference in the two. And we could convert those to money. Obviously, if they stay with us, that's, we, we've had retention, and that's very expensive to have turnovers. And so uh, it had a huge payoff. And when you look at the cost of it, it turned out to be a positive ROI for the company because it became a great re- recruiting tool, like 90, 90 plus percent came to the Company full time permanently, and they performed well and stayed stayed with us. So that's the, the gist of that story. We actually published that in a journal, a Journal of Cooperative Education, and gave some speeches on that. And it it really brought some good respect for that kind of program in that particular field at the time. Yeah,
0: yeah, I can, I I can imagine that that would have made a stir because that's. That's something that people generally, I would suspect, find tricky, right? They they put these programs together. It feels like it's a good thing to be doing, maybe giving back to the community. But how could we ever put a business value on this, I guess, is a question often asked.
2: Yes. Um, In fact, some people thought it was a way to support students and help them get through school. We're doing this for the good of society. But selfishly, it's a good thing for the company, particularly when you can show the ROI, the return on investment. That for all the money you're spending on that, you're getting it back plus more. Hey, it's a selfish thing to do now. Plus, it's a good thing to do for people who can't afford maybe to pay for their education so well. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and, then, and then maybe there's a, a lead into the, to, to, I think, perhaps the first examples or one of the first examples in the book. Which really intrigued me because you opened it with this, this example of chaplaincy in hospitals. And, I'm th- and immediately, even, even as somebody who's relatively well versed in these ideas, I'm like, well, how, how on earth are we going to uh, prove the, the value of, of, of chaplains in a hospital? And uh, yeah, t- tell us that story.
1: So about 2016, we were invited to meet with a very large group of chaplains. We were invited through the United Methodist Church and their accreditation for their, their chaplains. And Jack and I met with them and we were going into this meeting thinking, okay, this is going to be tough because doesn't everyone know the value of a chaplain? And we were afraid we were going to go into this and they were going to push back and say, you know, we don't need to be doing this. I mean, are you kidding? Really demonstrating the impact and especially ROI. But what we found is that they really embraced the idea of demonstrating their value because they know the value they bring. And these chaplains were chaplains in healthcare, military, prison chaplains, and they knew the value, and they wanted to demonstrate the value because they knew that their funding was at risk. And so, one of the uh, we, we about twenty five of, of them worked with us very closely, uh, building capability in our methodology. And one of them, Doug Stewart, the one you read about in the book, um, he wanted and he, you know, he had full support of his executives, and he knew that if he didn't demonstrate value in a meaningful way, that funding was at risk. And so he actually. Uh, set up an experiment putting a chaplain in ICU to demonstrate the value of chaplaincy in that particular situation and how it could actually affect length of stay. So it was, it's a really interesting story. and Doug and I have been on the road a little bit sharing that story with others who are also chaplains in the healthcare environment. And Jack and I, our position is if you can demonstrate the value of what a chaplain does, you can demonstrate the value of anything because there's nothing softer than the work of a chaplain, right?
0: Yeah, that that that's what struck me, um, that you you could. And, and I suppose you're breaking that taboo of like, no, it's okay to put a dollar value on this, right? Because I think that's something you intimated there that people may feel a bit shy of, like, isn't it even a bit sort of icky to try and yeah, put a monetary exactly. value on stuff like this?
1: And and that's, you know, many people do have that position. It's, it's a bit icky or why would you ever do something like that? But in the end, we only have so many resources, and so we want to invest in the resources and the tools that deliver the greatest value and create the greatest change, or achieve whatever the objective is.
2: Mm. Yeah, as this particular agency said, um, we as chaplains would have to learn the language of business. Uh, the the business won't necessarily learn our language. That's right. So we've really got to get into their world and show the value that we can provide in their world. That particular payoff was on length of stay. The the chaplains in that experiment reduced the length of stay with where they were there, compared to those where they were not. The length of stay is very expensive. That is, if you can reduce the time of someone in the intensive care unit, and that's the setting where this took place, hey, that's a lot of money you're saving the system. Yeah. And also,
0: I mean, that, setting it up in that way, there's also a, a powerful message there that you know people people are healing more quickly through the support of the of the chaplains, right? So there's there's, right. there's a there's a human story you could you could also take from that.
1: Yeah. The the patient as well as the family and that's what we've mm. learned through this process. It's not just about I mean it is about the patient, right? But patient well-being is also influenced by How the family and the support system reacts to that illness or whatever they're going through, and so a chaplain engages with the family as well as the patient as well as the physicians and the nurses. So we've learned a lot about chaplaincy in the hospital and the prison system and the military. They they do the work that that they need to do to ensure that the system that is supporting that patient or that that individual is is working, that they are supportive, and that they too are healing. So it's um it's interesting. And the other thing about the process is that it really level sets how we demonstrate performance, whether it's within an organization or a consultancy or a chaplain or a coach, we're level setting it. And we're saying, okay, investment in these resources and these people and these tools um, is just as important as investment in other areas like marketing or production or or whatever. In we can demonstrate it in the same terms and again as jack said it's terms that resonate with the decision makers because decision makers are not often going to learn the language of a chaplain or a coach or leadership development whatever we've got to learn their language and speak to them
0: yeah and and we can't always expect to just yes but intuitively surely you know you understand right. that this is going to be valuable for you know our people or our customers or or whatever it might be that's right yeah yeah um and that makes a a lot of sense. so um when when people come to you, let's say it's the, it's it's the chaplains or whomever it might be, and they say, yeah we want we want to demonstrate our value to you know, m- management. Let's say how do you how do you first summarize like the approach that you take uh, and then perhaps we can we could dive into the detail, but how do you sort of break it down initially in terms of what people need to do?
1: Well, the first thing when they come to us, we say, what are you trying to accomplish? Like, why? Why are you doing what you're doing? And so we will work with them to get clarity on their overarching objective, their goal, the business need for what they're doing. And then we'll help them sort out to determine if, in fact, their proposed intervention is really the right thing, given the why. And then help them set it up for success. So you develop those specific objectives, and then we coach them through, you know, how they could possibly get the data and analyze the data. But it all begins with getting clarity as to, you know, why are you, why are you coming to us? What are you trying to get? Because we have to demonstrate the value of what we do too. So we're teaching others how to do it, but we have to do it the same. So we clarify, you know, why are you coming to us? But then we also look at the work they're doing and really try to help them sort out the why of what they're doing. What is the business need for what they're doing and what's the payoff of it? You know, is it a big enough problem or opportunity to actually pursue given their proposed solution? So we start there with clarity of the why. And then Jack, if you want to add to that?
2: Yeah. So it's a matter of process then to collect the data, analyze the data and report the results and leverage the results. And so, we're defining success here around five levels. Of the first level is how they react to your project, your program, your initiative. Do they see value in it? The second level is what did they learn to make it successful? Uh, that's learning level. And then third is application and implementation. Applying what they've learned, making it successful. They're doing something now, it's execution. And the next level is impact. What impact are you having in the system? Those are measures already there somewhere, just like the chaplain impacted uh, length of stay in the hospital. And those co-op students who became graduates, their impact was that they stayed with us longer and they performed more and progressed more. And so we're looking for those impacts that are so important. And then we analyze, we sort out the effects of the impact from uh, from the program compared to other influences, so we know how much we've actually achieved, and then convert that to money and calculate the ROI. The ROI is the fifth level, and that's the ultimate level of accountability, showing monetary benefits compared to the cost. And ROI is a term that we all use almost every day when we purchase things. You know, is it really worth it? Mm-hmm. And that's what our funders and donors and supporters are often asking. Asking is is this worth it? It's the ultimate level of accountability. So we move through, through those five levels. There's like a logic of chain here, logic model from reaction, learning, application, impact, ROI.
0: Right, right. And, and where do you find that you have to do the most work with people on uh, you know, helping them through this process? What, what do people often need the most sort of coaching and training around?
2: It's, it's actually convincing them and showing them that this can be done. It is being done by literally thousands of people, and it's it's not that difficult. And also, there's a fear of the outcome. If my program is not working, you know, why do I want to show someone that value? And we'd say, well, if it's not working, there's a good chance that It's not something you've done. It's something that failed in the implementation, execution. You need to know that. The people who are concerned about it need to know about it. And this is a way to see what we can do to make it better, improve it. But if you follow those steps that Patty outlined there, starting with the end in mind, the business need, making sure we have the right solution, and we expect success by designing for it, we minimize or almost eliminate the possibility of a negative ROI in the end. Um, So getting people into this, and this is one reason we wrote this book. It's a a very straightforward, easy to read book. It's only 150 pages. Um, it's, It's got very little numbers and calculations and math there, but it's got lots of stories, as you point out, 20 stories there in that book. So it's getting people into this and and when they get into it they can see okay, I see how it's worked. it's logical. all of this is this makes sense. then they'll get into it. So our other books unfortunately have been too long sometimes. the average size of our book is probably in terms of pages about 400 pages, maybe five 500 for a lot of them and it's got things like money on the cover, ROI on the cover, show me the money. Is one of our book titles. That's that's intimidating for a person trying to see the value of what they do. So we we want a, an approachable, non-threatening, non-intimidating book, and this is what we have here. If we get them into it, they hey, they could do it themselves. We obviously can help them. Um, we can teach them more. But the point is, we we laid out enough here for you to go go do it. Yeah, yeah, no,
0: and that's right. And it is a very, you know, it's an accessible book, it absolutely. And I don't think, like, I think I counted like one or two formulas through that book. So yeah, that's that's right. Um, so I wonder what might be a good. Is there a good example we could use that we could just kind of step three people through to illustrate, you know, these steps in the process and, and bring it to life for people so they they get a, a better yeah. sort of understanding of the process. Maybe it's one
2: of the two we've mentioned, or that maybe there's another one. Well, one is—I think it's very current in today's environment—is a is a, a person who uh, went home to work remotely during the pandemic, and uh, she got she really made it work. As there were some struggles initially, but made it really work. She was actually more productive, and things are going good for her. It's a great convenience. Uh, she really wanted to continue, and then her company says. Um, well, I think it's time to come back to work now. And uh, she says, "I don't really want to. Uh, if I make the business case for me continuing to work at home, would you would you consider that?" And I said, "Well, yes. Um, what's your business case?" And so she she quickly looked uh, looked at this methodology and looked at the uh, other studies that we've done with working at home. Um, we have lots of published case studies there. Um, and so she she's basically told the, the company, says, look, first, your big issue is do people see this as valuable for them? And will it work for the individual? And certainly in my case, it does. She says, I've learned how to do it. See, she's working through the reaction and learning. And I made it work and we make it work. We have good collaboration. We have good engagement. My manager is okay with this. It's working. And here's the impact. The first impact is that um, I'm giving up my office and staying here. That's a huge saving for you. Uh, That's one impact. The second is if you don't let me work at home, yeah, I'll be leaving and that's a turnover. And we know it's gonna cost you this much money to replace me. That's another impact. Uh, Third is I'm more productive and we've got data that shows that. And even the company has admitted that during the pandemic, we're all productive, more productive. So I got productivity. So she says, here's the actual ROI now. Here's, here's what it's worth to you. Huge ROI because you've got a lot of these benefits and it costs you very little to make this work. And she says, in addition to that, Here's the ROI for me. It's very high because I want it. I like this. I want to continue this. I'm saving money from my my commute. I'm saving money for parking and for lunch every day. So it's making life easier for me. And and there's some huge intangibles of stress and convenience that's important here for me. And it's a good ROI for our city and our environment. we're, We're reducing congestion in the streets that we need to. And we're also eliminating a lot of carbon from going in the environment because that's what we do when we, when we commute. So the ROI for the community is positive. So with that convincing argument, they let her stay. So it just shows you, if you show the value of what you do in terms that someone can really understand and appreciate, it can work wonders for you, leveraging it for you in this case. How do you want to add to that?
1: No, I just thought I might just uh, share just one more example, um, because many of your listeners may be in that independent consulting or uh, coaching space. Yeah, and listening. so another example might be or another example is um, you're working with a client and they want to engage with you as a coach. And the first question is, why was the what's the business need? So maybe you are coaching the owner of a medium-sized business and say, I wanna increase revenue um, for the organization. And the coach says, let's define it. Revenue in terms of what? And then how profitable is that? And what's that worth to the organization? Then through the coaching experience, they develop action plans. Um, The person, the client learns what they need to know. They get new insights about themselves, about their team, how better to communicate with their team or their sales team the coach is always checking in with that client. But through the coaching experience, they develop an action plan. And here's what the client is to do, all with an eye on increasing that revenue and ultimately the profit to the organization. And then six months later, they follow up to see if in fact that happened, to see if that revenue increased. And then we sort out okay, how much of that is really due to this coaching experience? And that's the step to isolate the effects of the program. And this is an area that people are most interested in. We get asked this question, how do you do that? More frequently than any other question. And we sort it out and we can either use experimental design with a coaching engagement may or may not be the best choice. Um, we could use trendline analysis. a so very simple technique to check your data over time, whatever that revenue or that measure is over time. Project where it would go if you did nothing and then where it is given you had the coaching. Or we can use estimate. So at that individual coach level, engaging with that client, it is a really good process to design a coaching experience that delivers value, not just behavior change, not just insights about themselves, but really value that is important to the organization. And that value could be revenue, ultimately profit. It could be quality of work. It could be turnover, as Jack alluded to in the work-at-home case study. So it's just a very simple step-by-step process that ensures that the solutions our clients are investing in are delivering meaningful value. But it's value from multiple perspectives because to get to that impact in ROI, the client first has to buy into it. They have to see that this experience is important to me. They have to learn whatever it is they need to know so they can go out and do what you want them to do, which will ultimately drive the impact you're trying to drive. And you hope that that impact is enough that it overcomes the cost. So you get that positive return on investment.
0: Right, right. And. And where do what what are the, the kind of common pitfalls in this then? Where do you see people often, you know, going astray when trying to uh, calculate ROI and, and get this embedded in businesses?
1: The biggest pitfall is focusing on the activity of what they're doing and not the outcome of what they're trying to achieve. And especially know, individual consultants and independent workers, but within large organizations, we see it too. um, They chase the shiny object, or if you're independent, you're chasing the business, and so you just deliver, and it's all about the activity of delivering whatever it is you deliver and not really thinking through the process to ensure that, one, you're offering the right solution, but two, that solution is aligned with the need. Of the client or the, the organization, so I think one big pitfall is people are too focused on the activity of what they do, and not really looking toward the impact. And then to another pitfall is it is about process, and you know process takes time. Um, it's about setting it up at the beginning and actually you know plan your work, work your plan. And so sometimes we see clients they get impatient, they get you know disinterested. They want to wait too long to show impact. So now the client's not interested any longer. Um, So, those kind of things we see a lot of. And then I know, Jack, you've got something you want to add.
2: And credibility. So, when you get to level four and five, that's the the business measurement. And the ROI is getting it down to money and comparing Mm -hmm. to the cost. Uh, You have to be very credible because you're putting this in front of executives and administrators. And sometimes it's the funder for the program or major supporters for the program, uh, they, it has to be so credible. So sometimes they take shortcuts that impede that credibility, and when you do, you lose you lose your argument there. So making sure you have that credibility. We built this to be executive and CFO-friendly, as well as user-friendly, and as well as researcher and analyst-friendly. Um, that is. And professors, you you want something that your, your professors can support. So it's it's credible. It has to be credible. That's that's one of the pitfalls is not getting to that level. Right.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And and just personally having been involved in a lot of programs where there's a, you know, there is an eye on the benefits, and and it sometimes it, benefits tracking is a term used, right? And there's there's, there's somebody somewhere often with the responsibility to, um. Keep keep track of you know how a project is doing versus ROI, and it can sometimes feel like an overhead, right? Just like more admin that people don't necessarily want to engage in. Like, how do you avoid this this feeling like an admin overhead as opposed to sort of central to to the to the engagement or the project?
2: Well, you have to pick your battles. It's like, is my project big enough, expensive enough? important enough for, for me to devote this time to show the value. There's a lot of things we do that you probably, it doesn't get to that level mm. of, of scrutiny. And we, so we, if it's a major issue for you, it's a major, it's important uh, for the organization, then we've gotta do that. And when you make that decision, you're, you're basically accepting the fact that you gotta put a little time into it. You gotta invest a little bit of effort to show the value. It's really part of the project. When we work with project managers, uh, these days, many of them have an extra burden of showing the ROI on the project. They've always tracked schedules and budgets um, for projects, but now we, they're getting asked for, so what was the ROI for the organization to uh, for implementing that project? So. They realize now that's part of the effort now. It's just we've got to spend a little more effort to capture data, a little more data than we've had to do maybe a little more analysis. But we also want to work hard not to spend too much time. We're always looking at ways that we can streamline the process and take, take some shortcuts and still not lose our credibility so we don't get bogged down and have paralysis by analysis. So we, 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 we can work through that, I think in most all cases. Patty, do you want to add to that?
1: No, just what you said, Jack. It's baking it into the project. Many of the measures at the business level are are there anyway. They're in the operating systems. And today anymore, we just have so much data that are available to us or at least available to someone in the organization. So if we can't get to it, we say, okay, who can? And let's go make a friend and get to it. So we're in just a much better place than we were 25 years ago when we didn't have all the systems talking to each other. So many of the impact measures are already there. So it's just a matter of checking the data. Um, And again, if you have to rely on someone to help you with that. And then in terms of the data collection and the analysis, just building it right into the program. If we do the work up front, if we start with, why are we doing this anyway? We define the measure. We know what the value of the measure is. You've already got the data you need for the numerator. You have a good handle on what the cost will likely be, and it's just a matter of filling it out in the end. And then two, it's just leveraging technology to collect data, using action plans, building it all in. So it can be very um, inexpensive compared to the program cost. And we always say, you don't need to spend any more than 5 to 10% of the program cost on on the evaluation or the demonstration of value to impact an ROI, you just don't need to spend that much. What makes it complicated is when we want to demonstrate the value of the work we do, but we don't know why we did it in the first place. That's what makes it hard because now you're having to back into what that value should have been. So the more we do up front and define those measures up front, define success in clear, crystal clear terms. The better the program or the intervention, and the easier the evaluation.
0: Yeah, I tell you what comes to mind, um, and you do. I think you do touch on the book is um, OKRs that is a current trend in business. You know, objectives and key results, and we've 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 touched on that in the show. But I I find that that's uh, a very useful mechanism to have to force people to think about, especially numeric outcomes up front before they start um cuz exactly. cuz part of the discipline with results is those results need to be quantifiable quantifiable um and uh and whether that be customer satisfaction employee satisfaction um and and I and I've been working with the, uh, okay I was quite a lot with clients and I I've, I've never found a scenario where if we if we didn't think about it long enough we couldn't find some something we could put a number on um that that we could track and and think about up front um so yeah, it was interesting. I saw, I saw those in, in your book, Okay, I'll...
1: Yeah, we yeah. like we like that process. Hey, okay, Jack, sorry.
2: Well, I, I just wanted, that's a step in our model. It's the third step is to expect success and you expect success by setting those very clear objectives. So we want people to have objectives for how we want the team to react to our project, what we want them to learn, what we want them to do, and the impact. The key thing as you suggest is the impact. Making sure we have a very clear objective, very specific objective, whether we call it OKR or smart objective, it's, it's very um, disciplined and focused. And the research for the last 60 years on objectives is very clear. You have no objectives, you get very little outcomes. A vague objective gets you more. A very specific objective, like in the form of an OKR, gets you even more. Even a stretch objective gets you even more getting people involved in the projects to go beyond our minimum outline in our objective. And the, and the objectives are really defining the minimum you want out of it. So they're very powerful, very important part of this, as you suggest, and you've experienced there. Yeah. But
1: what we have to remember, it's not just about the business impact objective, that key re, you know, that key result we're going after it's objectives all along, all along the way because the objectives, the specificity in the objectives is given us a roadmap to design whatever the intervention is. And that means we need objectives that tell us how we know that the individual or the client is buying into whatever we're delivering. How are we going to know that they're learning what they need to know? How are we going to know that they're doing what we want them to do? And then how are we going to know the impact occurs? And so when we think about Okay, call call it OKRs, call it smart objectives, as Jack said, they're all the same. They're telling us how we're going to know we're achieving the result we want to achieve. And, you know, specificity drives results, that Vega Nebulous is going to give us Vega Nebulous. But we have to be specific along the way and then use the objectives as part of the design of whatever that intervention is. You're trying to achieve objectives all the way through that chain of impact. And a lot of times we miss that. We go for the the business impact objective, but then we fail to have those lower levels of objectives, which is really where the process works. The business impact is the consequence of what we've done. Um, So when we think about OKRs, we think about objectives. We really want to think about objectives all through that chain of impact and then use them the way they were intended to be used, design solutions and interventions to achieve the objectives throughout the chain of impact. And if we do that, we will have a better program targeting the right people at the right time, the right way. We will have an easier evaluation. And then the likelihood of us getting the results we want have increased significantly.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think you struck a nerve there with us on that uh, point.
1: Yeah, (laughs) we just see so many interventions out there and we look at these objectives and they're so vague. It's like, what does that even mean?
2: But probably people not there. are
1: buying into it. Yeah. And it's like, you know, let's, you're not serving yourself. Forget the results that the client's getting. You're not serving yourself well because there's very few really bad interventions out there. There's really, you know, most programs, most interventions are probably pretty good, but they're implemented poorly. And it begins with the setup at the beginning. Why are we doing it? Are we sure this is the right intervention? And what are those specific objectives? And if we can set it up right, we have set ourselves up to drive the outcomes we want to, that we need to, and we've set ourselves up for a design that can work. But you know, people just get in a hurry; they're just all about the solution and the activity and the shiny object, and they're going with it. And, and it's unfortunate.
0: I, yeah, and um, there is—I mean, there is a counter to the, like to the notion of. of um... Yeah, you know, having specific objectives, and that is that. You know, we we live in this this volatile, you know, uncertain, you know, complex world—the VUCA world. And and uh, you know, if we if we get too uh, fixated and attached to a specific and uh, a specific objective, then then we miss you know that adjacent opportunity. You know, mm-hmm. in the shifting sands, and actually, it can it can uh, harm our agility. And uh, yeah, it's it's not always. Uh, you know, an unalloyed good to have specific objectives that we stick to. And what's your response to that?
1: Plan and pencil. And I learned that from childhood. Plan and pencil. You've got your objectives, but you also want to look at, you know, a risk associated with them. What else could happen? So we're always thinking about the what else about it. So, and Jack, I think I cut you off again.
2: Sorry. Well, that's okay. It's... One of our rules in the book for objectives is to be flexible and make changes as needed. If things change, we have to change our objectives. And we also look at unintended uh, mm-hmm. outcomes. Um, there's almost always in a project, you find things that you hadn't thought about occurring. Some are, some are good, some are bad, but you need to look for those things, but also adjust your objectives along the way as you run into issues that say, Hey, this is not possible. Or this is too easy. We can we can actually tighten this up a little bit. Yeah.
1: And yeah. and and the results of of what we do, the outcomes of what we do is important. But it's more about the lessons we learn through the process, because what we may find is yes, positive ROI, but it, you know the employee team hated it. Well, let's balance that. May pay off yeah. the productivity, but now you've aggravated everyone else. That's not good either. So we have to look at the outcomes, but. We have to look at it holistically, and that's yeah. why we say what we're trying to do is help individuals and organizations create and demonstrate the value of their work. The creation of valuable work begins at the beginning. Demonstration is the evaluation, but in the end, it's about what you learn through the process and let's pivot when we need to.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the stories I, re- I really liked in the book was um was about this ni- this new anethiology process that that I think some, some doctors are bringing in from the UK to the US and um, that they, they decided before to um, attempt to have the whole hospital adopt this new process, they'd start with a, with a pilot um, to demonstrate ROI before they attempted a bigger program. And uh, that really struck me as an like a, you know, important idea that that sometimes the, the best thing to do might not be to, to attempt to calculate upfront an ROI for, for a big intervention but actually to go for a smaller one to give you the data to help you build the ROI case for the bigger thing. Could you
2: could you talk a little bit about that example? Yes. Uh, see, sometimes um, changing a process in a large organization is pretty costly. you got to make sure it's working. Even a forecast of that uh, can be inaccurate, although it's a good process to go through. A better way is to let's try it on a small number a pilot test. So we advocate that when you've got a big application. And that's an excellent example. It was in the British Columbia Interior Health System where they were changing their process for colorectal surgery, colorectal cancer surgery. Um, and so it's a marvelous example of taking a small sample showing the actual ROI and making a case to... Uh, the the. The funding authorities there, it's a government funded healthcare system there in Canada, and saying, Look, I need more money. They just don't have extra money. But when they see that you're actually saving some money and they can see those savings occurring quickly, and the CFO was the first one in that example to speak up and say, I think we should do this system wide because I can see money we're saving. I can use that money somewhere else. So it's a great way trying a little small sample. To see how the whole process can be implemented and work, so it's a great way to approach this.
0: Yeah, and I, because the number of times I've seen a major program, pro, pro, you know, major programs a spin up almost a cottage industry of trying to evaluate upfront what an ROI might be and then battling back and forth you know, over hypotheticals as opposed to yeah. just, yeah, getting out there, doing a pilot, getting some real data, and then basically any further discussion on that.
2: It just seemed like a very important point. Yes, it's a great alternative to just forecasting. Let's try it on a, on a pilot basis, and so fact, it's not so expensive.
1: And right, I- and in fact, we often say that your pilot ROI is the best form of forecast because you've actually executed
0: process yeah 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 um now there was another example in the book which i liked that having an uh, discovering a negative roi may not necessarily be a problem right Mm. yes like and and that we should not you know another reason not to fear doing this
1: Um, yeah well you know you want to be the one who finds that negative roi before someone else does for sure but we you know people are afraid uh, that what they're doing is not adding value, but it what the negative ROI is telling us is not adding value based on the measures that we've converted to money and the cost of the program could be adding value in other ways. So when we have that negative, we want to embrace it. Okay, it didn't work. Why didn't it work? And that's the value of the lower level of data. But it's also the value of the intangible benefits because it may be negative in terms of productivity and quality. But customers are happier. So let's look at it that way. All right. We can, we can address negative ROI, but we often can't address that unhappy customer so easily. So we say, look at the negative ROI as an opportunity to improve the program. Because um, if, if you get a 200% ROI on something, it is very rare for someone to reflect on what went right or wrong. If you get a negative, people are going to look. Say, let's learn what happened. How can we improve it? Maybe it's them not the right solution, but also what are the other intangible benefits? One of our stories in the book, um, Casey Buckley, she's with a pharmaceutical organization, and her, she had a coaching intervention that they invested a lot of money in. And she and I met, and she said, I think it's negative. We looked at the data. There was nothing she could do to change it. It was going down. It was going to be negative. And she had to present these data to the senior executives, including the chief financial officer for this company. And they, you know, they accepted it. They said, okay, we see it's negative. But what's so valuable is that you presented this story in a way that we never thought you could. And so we love this because now we know that this coaching intervention can deliver value. Maybe it didn't in terms of ROI yet, but the measures you presented were so valuable. So she ended up walking out of that meeting as a huge winner and contributor to the organization yet it was a negative ROI. So we just have to, it is what it is. It didn't work out the way we hoped, how can we improve it in the future?
2: It, no. Even the coaches, the man, it, was, it was the sales managers were supposed to be coaching the sales team. And, and there was some suspicion that that wasn't going on. And this not only verified that it wasn't going on so well, but also shows the impact that it has. And so the coaches says, Thanks for pointing this out because we we realized that we were the problem here. We just need to step up to this and do it. So it really worked out good for everyone. And there's there's another example there where a Fortune 500 company, a large package delivery company, was thinking about uh, uh, eliminating its um, tuition refund program. And the, the reason is that they had, at that time, they were having low turnover. And this, just to, just to clarify, that means that the, the company
0: pays for the, yes. for the the fees to go to college, right?
2: Yeah, if they want to take a degree on their own, the company pays for it. And the, the, the assumption was we're doing that to retain people, to keep people. It's a benefit for them. And there was a rumor going on that the executives were thinking about discontinuing it because it says, look, we don't have a retention issue. Maybe we don't need this. And so this person... Did, did the ROI study as a preemptive strike here. And she analyzed the, the data. And what she found is, yes, it's true. It doesn't affect retention much. It, it's not a big factor in people staying with the company. However, what they could see is it was an excellent mobility factor because people got their degrees uh, through this program and moved to other areas of the organization and, and ultimately moved up the organization. And this was a company that really puts value on people moving up the organization. In fact, the, the, one of the CEOs of the company started out as a courier and worked his way up, but did that with some additional degrees that he picked up along the way through the tuition refund plan. And so they said, look, yes, it doesn't pay off ROI on retention, but it does drive mobility and upward mobility and lateral mobility, and that's a reason to keep it, not based on retention. So they they agreed and they didn't stop the program. They just made sure it focused on programs that would help some mobility in the company. So that would have been negative if we'd done the ROI based on their assumptions. But if you look at the other measures that was driving, it, it made a good case for keeping it
0: yeah and you can imagine had it not had that individual not developed the, the the mindset of looking at the data and making clear assessments of the impact based on that data they would probably never got to that conclusion and been able to tell a story from the data around it yes yeah i mean it, it, it what what comes to mind is that term that we hear a lot now in business data led decision making it seems like this sort of roi conversation is a, is a conduit into that, right? To data-led leadership, data, data-led decision-making. Yes, it's
2: exactly. A, it
0: helps people develop a discipline there.
2: And we want them to make a decision on six types of data, not just ROI alone. And that's why we can live with a negative ROI sometime and make some changes. But we get reaction and learning, application, impact, ROI, and intangibles. Intangibles are measures in our system here that we don't convert to money, things like teamwork and collaboration and reputation, image and brand, uh, things that we don't normally convert to money credibly with a reasonable amount of time, we're going to leave it as an intangible. That's still important. The intangibles can make a difference here. So we look at all six types of data to make a decision. It's a rich base for making that decision now. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense, and uh, it's um, yeah. I suppose I suppose it. it the, the, what's great about these stories is is another lens for this is data led decision making, right? And and what you're you're providing yeah. is a wealth of like super practical examples, uh, and ones that that may um, not immediately uh, strike you as being applicable. The chaplaincy, for example. Um, where, yeah, like following these disciplines have uh, allowed
2: for people to yes. take uh, yeah. data. And that's,
1: that's what we were trying to accomplish with the stories. We we have many case study books that we've developed. So we have lots of books that we've written and, and worked with others to develop their case studies. But they get so much into the weeds of the process. So it's oh. hard to get the story out of it. So in this particular book, we just want to tell stories yeah. and not get into the technical aspects of it. Or of the yeah.
0: process of the analysis. Yeah. And there's such, um, you know, there's such human stories, right? Yeah. This is the big human yeah. show. But yeah, these are these are people getting out of ICUs earlier. This is, uh, you know, people having better careers. This is, uh, yeah, it's, it's great. Good. Um, Would you think there's anything we haven't touched on on, you know, on this you know, important topic?
2: Well, I'd say the the number one reason people, Often go into this is to keep their funding. So if you think of what what's what happens if I don't do this? See if your if you're, if your supporters see you as as a cost and not an investment. Um, that could be detrimental because costs get cut, they get control eliminated, paused, frozen. You know all those things that have can happen to you. But if your if your supporters, your funders, your sponsors see what you do as an investment, they'll often do more of it and, and support it and and enhance it and give you more money. And so getting budgets and keeping budgets is a critical issue these days. And this is a way to get there. Yeah. And it yes, it may take you a little time, but the consequences are too disastrous if we don't. Uh, because we lose funding and support and influence and all of that stuff that we need. Yeah, great.
0: Okay, well, Patty and Jack, thank you so much for your time. Um, we should talk about where people can find you. Um, uh, so yeah, where 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 would you send people who want to learn more? I know people can become a, a, a certified coach in in your work and. Uh, They can reach out to you for consulting. So yeah, where should they go?
1: So they can come to our website, uh, roiinstitute.net. And of course, can reach out directly to Jack and me. So it's patty, P-A-T-T-I, at roiinstitute.net and jack at roiinstitute.net. And then, so those are probably the easiest ways to reach us. So the website, our email, and then Jack, what other thoughts?
2: Yeah, well, you get the book on, on Amazon yep. or we'll wherever books are sold. Yep. Um, easy, easy to get to. Um, and we'd, we'd love to have a conversation with you. If you've got an issue, you want to talk through some things, contact us. We'd be happy to talk about
0: it. Excellent. Well, thank you once again. It's been a wonderful conversation. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Richard.
0: Thank you, Richard. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs,
2: head to firsthuman.com.